So we're back here with Eric Lyman, winemaker at Judd's Hill. In a previous episode we talked about the custom crush and what he does for his living. Uh, now we're going to focus on some of the particularities of winemaking and we're going to look at the fermentation process, which is obviously the most important thing in wine because it converts the uh, sugar into alcohol and wine would not be wine without the alcohol. So what do you do pre-fermentation? How do you organize and get ready? You know, our day kind of starts by by knowing what fruit is coming in. Uh, ho hopefully it's still coming in. We, we often get surprise picks that come in, but looking at our day and what does the day say? We have, you know, two bins of, uh, of Chardonnay coming in, uh, some reds. Uh, one of the reds has to be made into a rosé. So then we know uh, th this is what we got. We, we, this is what our day looks like. Uh, we always like to process the whites first when we can because, you know, I don't want, uh, I want to make uh, harvest as, as less uh, a, a much of a headache for my crew as possible. So by doing a red and then having them clean everything and do a white and then do a red again would be just, I, I, I wouldn't be very popular. So what we do is we hold off. We say, you know, uh, let's get these grapes into the cold room because uh, they're going to sit until this afternoon. And let's hopefully get the, the, you know, the whites in early. And, and I, I try to really communicate with people and say, I need you to get the white grapes in as soon as possible. Lots of times, and I'm not afraid to do this. I even do it by design. Sometimes is uh, we'll get white grapes in, not in time, and I, I don't want my team to be here crushing until wee hours in the morning. So we'll uh, we'll cold hold. I call it grapes. We'll put them in the put sprinkle a little bit of dry ice on them, put it in the cold room, and wait till the next morning. So basically, yeah, starting off. What do we get today? What do we have to start? And that then that goes into that's the product that's a process part, the production part. And then what's my team doing? So then we go into what did we crush and do yesterday? What is on a four-day cold soak? What needs to be inoculated? What needs to be chilled down or 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 or, or heated up? Um, those are all questions that that I have to answer as the head winemaker and disperse to the, the different uh, you know, groups that do what they do. So uh, a typical morning, let, let's say, uh, you know, right off the bat, we're doing a whole cluster pressing of a Chardonnay that's gonna be barrel fermented. Um, hopefully that would be one of the first to go. We'd uh, get it into the press, whole cluster press, get it into a tank to sometimes settle overnight. And then that's again when we go into it. We, we never direct a knot right away. It's always process, hold, run some labs because we need to know what we're dealing with. So we never inoculate the same day. We, we hold. And my, my old boss used to tell me that cold soaks were for winemakers who didn't know what they were doing because <laughs> it buys you time. Um, I could see that, but we do it as a matter of course for some, some wines. 
Uh, some wines we just rip and go. You know, we get the labs the, the day of crush. And then uh, uh, if we need to make any adjustments, we do. Fortunately, we work with a lot of wines that we don't uh, do a lot of adjustments. So um, that's always great, too. So what's um, the importance of cold soak? What does it do? Yeah, you know, there's... Um, it's 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 all about color, and I know there's you know the 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 book people out there will say oh it extracts phenolics and this and that and this and that. Um, I I think it's all about color and really kind of seeing what you got. Uh, it's especially a cold soak is especially important on higher brick grapes. I think because. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to use a, uh, a Zinfandel for an example. Zinfandel comes in and it, you know, it, it, it'll lie to you the whole time. You need to cold soak it to really let those berries, those, those more raisined ones, soak up and you get a true bricks reading. Otherwise, you're probably not hitting the bricks you think you are. Uh, so I cold soak Zinfandels and, uh, for sure for a long time because I want to know exactly what the potential alcohol is. Cold soaking is, you, you, you know, I, I, my, my sister-in-law has worked with two very, very high profile winemakers. And early in my career, I asked her, I said, cold soaking, are you for it or against it? Figured she had a definite answer. And she goes, I'm right on top of the fence. I can go either way. And it surprised me. And what surprised me was the fact that she had these two mentors and one of them never cold soaked and one of them always cold soaked. Mm -hmm. So there was just a difference. Uh, with, with some of the non-commercial lots and in macro bins when we're doing half ton lots, it's really hard to cold soak. Mm -hmm. it, it just doesn't really work. Uh, so those lots are pretty much uh, inoculate if we're inoculating them uh, the next day. Um, all our high, higher end wines, a lot of the bigger cabs and stuff we cold soak. Pinot, I like to cold soak. And again, it does go back to what my boss says. It gives you time to react. <laughs> so you mentioned inoculation. Do you always inoculate the wines or the grape juice with yeast? Um, not always. We um, Kind of my rule of thumb is with commercial clients, we do. I just want the safety of knowing what's going on. And they want a consistent product. So I have my little book of uh, yeast strains that work really well. And, you know, I, 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 do, I, I do like them. They, they do deliver as promised, usually. Do they make a huge bit of difference in the end with the aromatics that are listed in their catalog? I don't know. Um, some people will tell you no. Some people tell you yes. I like knowing which ones will get me through a Zinfandel fermentation. I, the, nothing's worse than a stuck fermentation. Mm -hmm. uh, so I use a certain strain that is just a hunter killer. It's gonna, it's gonna finish. And then there's also clients uh, and me personally, who kind of like to um, to let it let it go and let it let's see what happens now. This facility, and I know there's uh, people that 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 know this that. You know, the chances that the, the yeast that came in from the vineyard into this facility are the ones that are going to carry it through or slim to none. There's been so many cultured yeast mm -hmm. used in this facility that it's grown in here. So we have a house yeast. What it is, I don't know. We like to call it the Finkel flora for our, <laughs> our founders. Uh, but I 
will tell you it ferments good and hard, will ferment up to 16% alcohol, and it's a closer. I mean, it really works hard. So I've moved Jens Hill wines, slowly but surely, every year I let more and more go without adding yeast, and my own brand is always the offshoot of that because I let them... I don't inoculate them. They're surrounded by other stuff, and it's a good, strong yeast. So, so yeah, a little bit of both. Uh, play it safe, inoculate, play it a little, little, uh, little loosey goosey. Uh, let it, let it go. Let it see what it does. Another winemaker once said to me that yeast is much more important for beer than it is for wine uh, in terms of, of flavor and actually how it affects the, mm -hmm. the flavor of the beer. But others will argue that yeast is vital to wine as well. Okay. Sure, it's like you get. Uh, you know, five winemakers in the same room, you're going to get five different answers on what it is. Um, but for what you're saying, yeast is, you know, the most important thing is getting the fermentation complete. That's, that's what it's all about. Yeah. In the yeah. end, it's all about, uh, you, you know, we, I used to, like I said about, I go back to Zinfandel. People always say, you know, Pinot Noir, the heartbreak grape. Well, Zinfandel is my heartbreak grape. It, uh, it, it lies to you in the vineyard. It lies to you in the tank. It, it's just... It's, it's not fun doing restarts on ferment. So I used to use this yeast strain, uh, several different yeast strains on, on this old Vines Inn we have. And um, I realized every year all of them got stuck. And I would always use this one called 43, Uva 43. It's a restart. So two years ago, I started using that up front, and I haven't had a stuck Zimadel since. So uh, that's my... Uh, I like to think I was brilliant on that. <laughs> <laughs> of course, stuck fermentation for Zinfandel is the, the reason why Zinfandel exists. So yeah. you could have gone that route. Yeah. <laughs> but it's obviously it's still an issue with Zinfandel. It's not just oh, a, yeah. that one-off issue in the 70s. It's something that... Yeah. And why do you think that is with Zinfandel? Uh, well, they, they're such uneven ripe grapes. And, and you got to think, if, if a Cabernet... If half a Cabernet cluster is... Um, has raisins and super, and half doesn't. Those little raisins aren't anything compared to a giant <laughs> Zinfandel raisin. Mm -hmm. And um, I just think getting the good read on on the, and, and that's why the cold soaking has just been great for us on it, and a long cold soak at that, because we see the bricks just keep rising while as it's soaking up, and as the as the the desiccated berries are getting rehydrated. And, you know, we're working, we're still doing pup over and stuff, and you really see a, a, a shocking, you know, it'll go from 26 bricks to 29 bricks in three days. And uh, so, um, so yeah, that's, I, I think that's why it's just, you can't get a full read on those clusters until they're all kind of made equal. Yeah, for those listeners who um, haven't been to California and have never seen a Zinfandel vine, it is remarkable when you go, as they're getting towards harvest, and there's just every different shape and size of oh, berry. Yeah. You've got ones which are overripe, others which are still green and tiny, then healthy ones in the middle. So you can see, see why it's a difficult grape to work with. So you mentioned the yeast that you use with Zinfandel. What about two other major grape varieties like Cabernet Sauvignon and Chardonnay? Which yeast strains do you use for those? Yeah, there's, um, you, you know, there's a lot of popular ones. There's D254, um, which is a one. You know, they all say, ooh, isolated for the best. You know, uh, Bordeaux, I mean, uh, yeah, Bordeaux Vineyard in, in France. Uh, there's um, there's a, a company out of France called Lafort, 
that um, I've gone to a lot lately. Um, I think they're just more straightforward with their claims and uh, they've been really solid. So we use FX10 on that. There's just so many. There's, mm-hmm. it's, it's funny because when I first came into the industry, I would sit and read so many yeast strains and I've just slowly but surely with experience realized, you know, you know, this is the one I like mm-hmm. and, and, and this is where we're at. Same with white wines. I mean, there's, I mean, you, you open up a, a Scott Labs, you know, yeast strain book and there's hundreds of them and, and it's truly amazing. And if you go down these rabbit holes with them and then in the end just go like, I don't get it. <laughs> you know, so, um, so yeah, there's definitely favorite. Every winemaker has their favorite mm-hmm. little, little strain. And do you like longer or slower fermentations or does that, does that depend on the grape variety? Uh, it depends on the grape variety. Um, I just like them to finish. <laughs> Again, that's important. Uh, you know, with the whites, we go low and slow. We turn the, we get the most whites, uh, not the barrel fermented, of course, but you know, our rosés, I prefer making rosé in uh, stainless steel, controlling the temp, letting it go low and slow for a while. Um, I like uh, barrel fermented whites also, but, you know, they tend to be um, a little faster. Do I like, yeah, that's a good question. I, 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 again, when it comes down to it, I like them to finish and finish healthy, not just finish, not just burn through up to 90 degrees and finish in two days. Um, I, you know, I do like skin contact, so, you know, a longer fermentation is good, but is it the most important thing? No, the most important thing is for it to finish healthy mm-hmm. and, and just get it done. So you said barrel fermentations are quicker. Why would that be? Uh, just cause they, they get up to higher temp. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you're keeping, if you're keeping, let's say you're doing a, a rosé in barrel, it could get up to 85 degrees at its you know, fever pitch time. Whereas we cap it at 60 degrees for some, uh, 60, between 60, 61, 62 to 58, depending on what kind of style we're, we're shooting for. Uh, so those just pop a lot slower and they're in there for weeks sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, so for European listeners, 85 degrees is about 29 degrees Celsius and 16 is 15 degrees nice. Celsius. It's <laughs> <laughs> so quite a big difference. Yes. Um, and what is the advantage of a barrel fermentation in terms of flavor or style or profile? Yeah, um, on whites, it gives it, uh, it, and again, my terms aren't always so uh, textbook, um, it rounds out things. A barrel fermented Sauvignon Blanc, even if it doesn't go through ML, has just a, a rounder feeling to it for me. Um, really pleasurable this year. Uh, we just got through with kind of rosé slash Sauvignon Blanc bottling season, and um, we did a number of barrel fermented rosés. Each one of them turned out great. I had one experimental one that turned out kind of funky, but um, for the most part, they really turned out good. And um, I think I'll be doing a little more barrel fermented rosés, maybe just as a component within a blend. And I always do that too. I, I have commercial clients where we do a majority of their wine in stainless steel, like a Pinot Grigio or uh, uh Blanc. I always do a few barrel ferments because they can come in, they get a little hotter, maybe they 
go through some ML and lose a little bit of acid. They're always just a really good tool in your blending, your final blending thing mm -hmm. to have. Do you ever use barrel fermentation for red wine? Uh, no. <laughs> and my, uh, my uh, cellar master, every year I go, we're popping ahead and we're going to do a barrel ferment. And he looks at me and just shakes his head. So one of these years, this might be the year we do it. <laughs> it's a trendy thing. It's, um, it's just a logistical nightmare. Uh, you you got to think, you, you're not just moving barrel. They have to be on a, on a pallet. They have to be with, with us here during harvest. At any given day, we could have 80 uh, picking bins full of uh, one-ton picking bin or half-ton picking bins fermenting. And we have to be able to move like uh, that Tetris game. We have to make things fit and throwing in you know, a pallet with three barrels that you can't easily move around is not been very well received. Now, some people do this thing too, where they, they put it in, they tap it, they get it on these racks that, you know, we just don't have the timer. <laughs> I think it's cool. It's a cool concept, but we haven't done it. I'll, I'll let you know next year uh, if we do it. <laughs> do you think it make any difference? I'm sure it does. You know, that's the thing with wine is that, that always amazed me with wines. Everything makes a difference mm -hmm. no matter what, uh, no matter what stage wine is in, uh, during ferment, whatever, up until the glasses that you have at your table, it is morphing. It, it, it's being influenced by by its environment and what it's in. Uh, never cease to amaze me. You can have two two lots, the same. One was done in a macro bin and one was done in a tea bin, and they're different. So, so yeah, things things make it, it would make a difference. Would that difference be worth the heartache? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> mm -hmm. Think about the length of fermentations. You've got a white wine in stainless steel at cool temperature. How long would that ferment take? Uh, could be 20 days. Mm -hmm. Could be... Uh, could it, it, if you use a, if you use a uh, commercial yeast strain that's a little more uh, virile, and vir I don't know what the word, you know, like strong, mm -hmm. uh, you would... Uh, it could go faster, but again, we, we control the temp. So... Uh, sometimes if it's lagging too much, I'll have them start to let the temp rise. When it gets down to about four bricks, I usually cut the temp off and let it just finish strong. Because mm -hmm. again, that stuck wine is, is not a fun thing unless you mean to do it. So, um, yeah, we've had some we've had some good long ones. Um, uh, we've had some good long uh, uh, reds too that just you know up in the big stainless steel tank. Um, I capped the temp at like 85 because we want uh, some long time and uh, they've gone slow and uh, um, again uh, I'll just keep going back to it as long as they finish it's it's all good so when you say slow how long is that going to take um, slow For, reds yeah on the reds right. you know 10 days 12 days then this is primary I'm talking mm -hmm. so yeah, they can just peter along. Uh, I don't know what our record is. I remember one one year we had one that had just a very long time on skins, and and it wasn't that it was fin it, it wasn't stuck. It was still popping, but mm -hmm. it, it was just the last you know five brick drop was brutal. We had to you know, you know well again about being uh, you know rolling with the punches. That's when you go and take it out into the sun. The sun has this beautiful. Uh, way of just reinvigorating a wine, you know, and I don't want to start the uh, restart procedure until I absolutely have mm -hmm. to. So we'll keep checking numbers, and if the VA isn't rising and it's still going, we'll let it go until we 
until I say, hey, it's it's time to bring in the paddles and we do the whole restart. So go on, how, how would you restart the fermentation? What do you do? Yeah, there's a, oh, there's so many procedures, uh, things to do. Some people uh, have you um, take it off the skins, press it, add a bunch of yeast holes and stuff. E- each each uh, enological supply company has a different procedure. Uh, basically what you want to do is you want to get, if there's anything toxic in there, you kind of want to get it away from it. You want to reinvigorate the the baseline, um, be that with nutrients or, or, or fining or anything, you want to get that able to get up again. You want the temperature up and you want to hit it with one of these, you know, closers, like, you know, I call them, um, and, and, and hopefully they, they finish. And, um, you know, some people will take a small amount to get the culture really churning and then they add 10 more gallons and then you keep adding, you know, double the amount until you have the whole volume in one move. So if you're going, you start to start at five gallons, you move up to 10, then 20, then you just keep getting up over a period of a day or so. Some people do it all in one day. Some people wait for bricks drops. It's Mm -hmm. just another one of those things where you ask, you know, five winemakers, you're going to get five different answers. But usually heat... And one of those super strains is going to going to mm-hmm. catch you through it. Also, talking about fermentation of different grape varieties, when you're making a blend, do you co-ferment or separate the, the varieties and then bring them together at the end? We, I'm a believer in it's all good if you have co-ferment a field blend. I think it's cool. I think it's a cool concept. Um, we get a lot of people here that plant vineyards in California. Uh, to mimic their favorite chateau in France. And they go, but it works at my chateau. They have half the vineyard this and a quarter of this and a quarter of that. Well, they know it works because it's been working for hundreds of years. Does Merlot ripen the same uh, as Cabernet and uh, you know whatever your field blend is? Maybe not, probably not. Mm-hmm. So you're gonna get overripe grapes with underripe. Well, sometimes that works, but the field blend thing is a cool concept for me personally, but I don't see it working a lot with what I've worked with. Definitely coming up with an interesting blend, uh, blend with separate separate ferments. I mean, we even do separate ferments within the same lot, just do different characters. You know, we'll do one, uh, just go with Pinot, uh, one whole, at the same lot, five ton lot, we'll do, you know, one that's crushed, and lit up right away, one that's whole cluster, one that's 20% whole cluster. So, so yeah, definitely the, 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 the co-fermenting thing is cool when it works. Just like Viognier and Syrah, I totally want to do it. However, Viognier is always way riper. And you start losing it is what happens. It, it's, okay, well, I'll keep my Viognier at 27. When the Syrah finally got up to 24, but in fact, you know, when, when those grapes are at 27, the bees, the birds, they're in love, man. And they're, <laughs> you're just losing. Uh, this year, there's one vineyard that we do have that. And somebody came up with the bright idea. And I don't know. I'm, I'm sure this is, is just freeze them. Just, just get. And then, you know, and that's cool. But it would be great to actually find a vineyard where they both came in at the same time. Mm-hmm. It would be way cool. But yeah. it hasn't happened yet to me here. 
So you mentioned whole cluster fermentation. Um, what do you think are the advantages of doing whole cluster fermentation? Well, yeah, that's it's a um, and disadvantages as well. Sure, disadvantages. Uh, you know, oh, go figure. The the, the wine is stemmy. <laughs> it's like, duh, you put in, you know, hundred percent whole cluster. It's gonna have some stems. Uh, I had a a, a childhood uh, friend and a very uh, a winemaker that I. Um, asked for advice one time and he taught me, you know, people, people will say whole cluster and stick to it. But guess what? If you put green rachises into uh, your whole cluster ferment, you're going to get green bitterness. So don't do that. And uh, so getting uh, grapes, the right lingified uh, uh, rachis into the whole cluster and not super green seeds will work. What does it do? Uh, it adds body to Pinot, I think. It adds a earthiness, stemminess. It's 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 fun for me to do because again, um, if you just do every wine the same cookie cutter way, it gets really boring. So we do a lot more whole cluster here now at Chet's Hill uh, than ever before. Uh, our Pinot, we do several stages of whole cluster. Uh, Moved, I do like thirty percent whole cluster. Uh, Some Syrah. We don't mess around with the Napa calves with whole clusters, mm -hmm. uh, just because I've never really heard of that. And um, you know, when 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 your fruit is that expensive, you kind of don't experiment a lot <laughs> with it. I mean, I'm not experimenting with a twelve thousand dollar ton fruit. I'm nailing it, you know. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, I, we did by accident kind of a thirty percent whole cluster Cabernet Franc one time. That was cool. Um, I have a lot of uh, younger. Uh, winemakers that come through Judd's Hill on while, uh, when they're starting out, they move on to bigger and better things. But I see them in their, you know, trying out their stuff and a lot of whole cluster, a lot of whole cluster Syrah, uh, hundred percent whole cluster Pinots. So, yeah, it's out there. It's fun. It's it's, it's uh, but but I, I just hate when people do it because they think they have to do it because of marketing or whatever. It's like go ahead if you put that in and then cry to me. Uh, you know, six months down the line, that it's too green and stemmy. Don't, <laughs> don't. I, I told you so. Yeah. And then with the whites, with malolactic fermentation, is that something you allow to happen naturally, or do you make it happen? Yes. On, I, I, I love to do it naturally, but again, on most of my commercial clients, I inoculate because again, I don't know what's going on. I, 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 I don't want to take a chance with the commercial people unless. They want me to. Um, uh, I did personally and uh, for myself and for Jets Hill this year, a Chenin Blanc for the first time. And um, I let it go through naturally. Uh, didn't do any inoculations on either uh, the front or the end or the malactic. And, and it was great. So who knows? I might do more. Uh, but again, when it comes to my commercial clients, I have to hit a, I have to hit a pretty consistent mark because they're not um, in any way, shape, or form natural or uh, low intervention. They mm -hmm. want a consistent right. product. So, yeah, I'll inoculate with those. And that's not, is that the same for reds? Or is reds just, it happens? Same with reds. Same yeah, with oh, yeah. Well. oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we just want to make sure uh, in the end. This year has been weird with the MLs on the reds. I've had some that just will not, are not finishing. They're, they're not, and they were inoculated. Um, so that, at that point, you know, you got to, 
you got to make the decision as a head winemaker, do I stop it and stop the rise of the VA? And okay, what what, what happens if there's 0.2 grams of ML left? You sterile filter. And so it's it's not going to be so much of a sensory thing. So that's again rolling with the punches here. You gotta you gotta react. You gotta make those decisions based on what's best for the wine. And but inoculating goes a long way because it finishes pretty good usually. Yeah. And what do you inoculate with? Uh, there's a few different kind of strains. Was, I, I can't even name. There's like uh, like should be one two three something like that. You know, big business. Big business is is enological supplies and yeast strains and. Uh, tannins and enzymes i know we'll talk about all that stuff probably mm-hmm. at a later date um, that'll be fun to talk talk about uh, because that goes along with low intervention versus intervention intervention is adding enzymes to do what nature could do uh adding things that fix color and all that stuff so yeah we'll be talking about that in the next episode when we're talking about manipulating wines or or not and all the different things that can be done or not So thank you, Eric, and we'll see you in the next episode.